Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is mind, brain, and spirit. My guest is Peter Fenwick, who is both a neuropsychiatrist and a neurophysiologist. He is author most recently, of Shining Light on Transcendence, The Unconventional Journey of a Neuroscientist. Co-authored with his wife, Elizabeth Fenwick, is The Truth in the Light, an Investigation of Near-Death Experiences, as well as The Art of Dying. His other books include Past Lives, an Investigation, The Hidden Door, Understanding and Controlling Dreams. Peter is in the United Kingdom, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Peter. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. And it's a real pleasure to be with you, Jeff. I've seen your uh, name so often on, con on the Consciousness Forum site, so really pleased to see you. Well, thank you, Peter. And I know you've had a very long and illustrious career ranging from uh, spiritual inquiry of, of many different types, as well as a professional career as a neuroscientist. Uh, I'd like to go back to the beginning and talk about uh, your work as a student, because you had as, as your tutors two uh, Nobel Prize uh, laureates. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, I was very fortunate because I got into Cambridge and went to the best college there, obviously, which is Trinity. And the master of Trinity was Lord Adrian. My supervisor was Andrew Huxley. Now, you can't have a better team than that. So both obviously laureates, you say. And so, um, yeah, that was very good. And Andrew... Uh, I think more than anybody taught us how to think. Um, he was uh, very gentle in in what he did, but you can see that his brain was extremely sharp and he knew exactly where he was going. And so, of course, one tried to copy him. Uh, after uh, graduating, you became a specialist in the treatment of, of epilepsy. And that, that's a very interesting condition. As I understand it, uh, uh, there's some studies that suggest uh, epileptic fits can be related to creativity, like brainstorms. They can be. Um, uh, the whole subject has got um, very confused, really. Um, I was a neuropsychiatrist, and so I dealt with minds and brains. And I um, uh, ran the epilepsy clinic at the Maudsley Hospital, which is the premier teaching psychiatric hospital in the UK. And uh, that was great fun, actually. I did that for about 20 years. And so I learned a lot about epilepsy. And in fact, it was always recognized that epilepsy is the great teacher. And it's the great teacher because you know where the lesion is, you know where the discharges are going. Therefore, you have a good idea about the functioning of that particular piece of brain. Now, you ask about mystical experiences and um, epilepsy. I'm just going to back up a bit. There are two types of epilepsy, those with Grunwald seizures, where you go out straight away, and those with partial seizures. Now, partial seizures are the one with, ones we're interested in. They will start in a particular part of the brain, circle around a bit, and then may stop there. But because you're conscious all the time, you'll be able to report what is happening. Um, and there's another story. <laughs> which has got into the literature, and that is that there's a Godspot. And Godspot came from California, where you are, Jeff, I think, are you? Well, I'm in New Mexico today, but I lived in California for 30 years. Okay, well, there was um, a journalist going around uh, uh, some uh, papers uh, 
posters after after a conference, and he pointed to the um, uh, to the temporal lobe to the guys whose poster it was, and said, "What's that?" And so he said, "Temporal lobe." He said, "Ah, oh, I know. That's where all the mystical seizures come from. That's the god spot." And he wrote it up later that he had seen the god spot, and of course he never had. And it, it just confused the literature utterly because people believed that there's such a thing as a god spot, which of course there isn't. Um, they are extremely rare mystical seizures. I think probably um, in my whole career I might have seen two. Now that's an awful lot of patients with epilepsy only to find two people who had uh, mystical seizures. And even they weren't perfect. But this all, of course, came from Dostoevsky, didn't it? And his um, description of an epileptic seizure. And so, no, they're not like that. They usually cause a decrement in brain function, function and very seldom do they produce anything like that. So, yes, they're there, but rare. Well, I, I was actually thinking more of uh, Julius Caesar. I understand he was an epileptic, and yet he was a great military leader and uh, a creative writer as as well. I, I hadn't yet been ready to push into the mystical area, but let, let me bring this up. I haven't ever discussed this with my viewers, but I have uh, throughout my life experienced a similar but different condition uh, that the doctors have called a syncope, where I would lose consciousness occasionally. And for me, it was actually like uh, very mystical. It seemed as if it was the, the beginnings of potentially an out-of-body experience, but I, I, I think I stopped it. And I've learned to control them. I haven't had a syncope in decades. But uh, one of the findings that you came up with working with epileptic patients is that people can control their seizures. Oh, yes. Um, that's absolutely right. Uh, we, we did a study on that, and we found that uh, I think it was 30% of the patients in our clinic could control the onset of their seizures. And uh, that... Um, 25% could stop their seizures spreading. So it's, it's very powerful. You can actually get control over the whole thing. Now, um, epilepsy and syncope, of course, are quite different because the whole brain goes down in syncope because the blood supply, as you know, uh, is reduced. And many tall people, and I'm quite tall, have syncope on standing. But I, I learned very quickly that you have to control it. So you put your head back down and then the reflexes adjust and you, you, you then pass out. Are you more creative, which was your question? Are patients with epilepsy more creative? Interesting question. Um, the answer has to be uh, in in the large sweep of patients with epilepsy now. Uh, because remember, uh, most of them, unless they've got childhood epilepsy and a genetic epilepsy, most of them are, in fact, brain damaged. Now, can brain damage lead to creativity? And now you come into another interesting area. And here you are linking onto the idea of brain damage and the arising of special gifts, rare, but does occur, like telepathy, like um, an, a, uh, an NDE-like experience. And uh, so if you're... If the injury you have produced an NDE, then it's possible uh, for you to get a change in consciousness after uh, you've had the NDE, in, uh, due to the NDE. And that is, uh, that is some people, not many, but some people go non-dual. In fact, it's one way to non-duality. 
So, yeah, I would like to think that uh, uh, Caesar had special features due to his epilepsy, but I think it was Caesar, actually, not his epilepsy that generated him. Well, for benefit of our viewers who didn't follow everything you just said, NDE refers to near-death experience, and that's another area that you've uh, explored quite extensively. Yes. Um, I, I read Moody's book way, way back in the 1960s, going on early 70s, and I knew it's rubbish, absolute rubbish. If these things happen, at any rate, Moody was in California, and just a, another Californian saga, and certainly would never cross the Atlantic. And so I rested happily in that. There's no need to look them any further until one day, and this has happened to a lot of us, this guy walked into my consulting room. He had just been in one of the other major teaching hospitals. I was at St. Sonicis in London at that time. And he um, had failed catheter, and his heart stopped. And he told me what chaos was going on in, in the cath lab at that time, because they obviously hadn't got it set up for stopping people's hearts. I mean, things are very different now, but remember, that was a long time ago. And I went out of his body, down the tunnel, uh, met the being of light, and then into a heavenly realm, had a life review and came back. And I was watching this guy when he was telling me about it and think, thinking, has he read Moody's book too? And the answer is, no, he hadn't. Um, he is absolutely genuine. And so I got and understood at an early age from first-hand accounts what it was like. And uh, there were one or two of us in London at that time who were interested in it. And so we could compare notes. But remember, this is fringe stuff. You don't go around then talking to your colleagues and say, yeah, I met an interesting patient with near-death experiences. Uh, that came quite a bit later. But I was very fortunate because uh, the uh, BBC invited me to actually host a television program called Glimpses of Death. And I think that was 88, so that's quite late. And um, so I said yes. And it was a nice program, and I liked the producer very much. And um, we got 2,000 letters following the program. Jeff, do you remember letters? You open them and take things out. You don't just click on them. <laughs> well, we got 2,000 of those things. And so amongst them were a lot of fantastic experiences. So I took the experiences out. Um, wrote around to everybody with a questionnaire so to standardize the data. And that then allowed us to write our first book, which was The Truth in the Light. And I think there was either 350 or 400 there, but we had 500 in all. So I had a very good database so I could answer questions. Uh, who has a near-death experience? Well, 10% of people with cardiac, or rather 10% of our sample, had cardiac arrest, so they go with cardiac arrests. Now, the field has changed. Um, I found uh, it associated with meningitis, with childbirth, all the usual things, severe illness. And uh, uh, I also found the fear-death experience when people got very frightened, their brain function wasn't disturbed. And um, I also got some we had a near-death experience in front of the fire. Interesting. So straight away, you can see that near-death experiences are getting mixed up with a whole lot of other transcendental states. And uh, a colleague of mine, Sam Parnia, and Bruce Grayson, who you know well, I'm sure, um, uh, and this one other author, are going to produce a pamphlet and publish it. And what we'll be saying is near-death experience means an actual death experience. That means if nobody came, you would have died. 
Now you can't you can't really say that for childbirth. You might be able to uh, meningitis. Yeah, but it's a different sort of thing. It's not immediate. Um, sitting in front of the fire, no way. <laughs> um, getting frightened in the car because you're going to crash, no way. So it will tidy up the field if people now refer to what they their experience has to have to be a near-death experience because the whole field is such a mess. You don't know what people are talking about. Like, for example, one uh, famous theory is REM intrusion. REM intrusion on the borders of death? I don't think so. And so it, it will actually uh, tidy things up a lot, I think. The REM is rapid eye movement. In other words, they're going into a uh, hypnagogic state or a, a dreamlike state. A dreamlike state, absolutely. Not near death. Well, there are many uh, hypotheses, uh, especially from the materialist camp who don't want to uh, accept any sort of transcendental interpretation or mystical interpretation or spiritualist interpretation of the near-death experience. But I gather that after looking at this quite extensively, you've come to the conclusion that the near-death experience is actually uh, emblematic of the early stages of dying. That's correct. Absolutely correct. Um, uh, put that way, it sounds a bit strange. Uh, let's actually just go back on that, because you mentioned dying. And um, because of the near-death experience, and because of your question like that, uh, is this in fact the dying process, I thought what I ought to do is find out about dying. Jeff, if you go into a new field where there's been new, very little research, you're an international expert after reading about three papers. It's uh, very satisfying for the ego. So uh, there's very little data on it. And so we did our own studies and were able to understand the process of dying and how you go from uh, very few people, but enough to make it interesting, have a premonition that they're going to die then about a fortnight before they die, you get your deathbed visitors who say they're going to take you. And then um, what you do in the dying process is uh, enormously interesting. Not everybody, but some people um, then go into a transcendental realm, which they can describe very well. They go in, they visit, and they come back. What's it like? Well, obviously light and love and there's <laughs> spiritual beings there they say and um uh they stay there for a bit uh, some people call it a spiritual waiting room others just call it an area of love and light and then they come back uh into the hospice again and then they may get another introduction to this area so there's a bit of back and forth thing there uh, and then, um, just before death, you get the uh, lightening up before death, the Victorians called it, which is, in fact, uh, the sudden uh, arousal uh, for people who have um, uh, lost their memory. Their memory will come back. If you um, are paralyzed, you can sit up. And this is called terminal lucidity, and it lasts for well, the whole thing may last an hour, a couple of hours, and then you lie back and die. So this is about the last thing that you actually do. And then from there you go to, you may take the last chance to go and visit people in what are called deathbed coincidences. And uh, in a study we did of the coincidences, uh, most of them, they were all within half an hour and the majority was at the time of death. So you then go anywhere in the world to where this person is and visit. And the person who receives the visit, interesting, 
uh, uh, I'll tell you an Australian one because it's a very nice one. A son in England, a sailor, mother in Australia. Um, she wakes up in the night feeling that something awful has happened and she sees her son dripping wet at the end of uh, at the end of her bed or certainly in, in, in her imagination. And then the son slowly comes towards her and he then becomes surrounded by light and he says to uh, his mother, it's okay, don't worry, I'm absolutely fine and leaves and that's the message that most of them give and so when she could she rang up to find out that it's exact time that he came to her um he in fact uh fell overboard and drowned in the uk and uh, you think well there must be somewhere where you can't be got at what about the bottom of the atlantic ocean in a submarine you should be safe there sorry jeff you're not because we've got a lovely story of a submariner whose grandfather came to visit him uh, in his submarine uh, at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. So that's, that's rather exciting. Then after that, you, you of course, uh, as a dying person, are not around. Uh, but there are a whole lot of non-local phenomena. Non-local means that uh, you, you can't actually um, show that what the, what the cause is in reductionist science. For example, there may be um, a lot of light around uh, in the room seen by the dying and by their carers. You may um, see uh, birds that come to the window and sit on the ledges. Jeff, nobody's done a simple study. It's a very simple one. This is what the dying say, that birds come. Why has nobody put a video camera on the, on the windowsills of the dying and counted birds? I mean, it's such an easy thing to do. Um, and uh, dogs howl at a distance. Cats, cats don't meow. They, they get very upset and tend to rush around a bit. And then... Um, there are, uh, yes, I think probably the most important thing after that is shapes leaving the body. Uh, they tend to come from the chest or they come from um, the, uh, or out of the head. And they're quite common, but they're not only seen, of course, by uh, the carers. Not all carers see them. So that in itself is, is enormously interesting because it tells us that there have to be two things. One is they have to be sensitive and the other is the, the person has to in some way influence them so that they can see it. And then you die. Then there's another phenomenon which I like. And this is called the emptying of the body. Uh, I don't know if you've ever sat with dead people because uh, you'll find or a lot of people find and I've seen it myself is that the person is there in the room with you uh, then after about two to three hours they um, they clearly leave sometimes people say there's a sort of breeze sometimes people say they just know it and then the body is empty it's just just an empty box. And, uh, of course, if you're dying in hospital, you haven't actually got that far. And so um, you may be wheeled into the morgue, not having left your body, as is sensed by people outside. So that's dying, but we need more than that. And there is a very good, uh, unusual, brave. Um, uh, she's a she's a palliative theologian. 
and she lives in um, Zurich, and her name is Monica Renz. And she has done some wonderful studies with about 80 patients with cancer, and I think one was 130 patients, so they're not trivial studies. And she's uh, interviewed them uh, four times a day or three times a day, and that's not trivial. That's a lot of work, or she and her team do, because not one person could do it. And she then uh, classifies dying rather like this. Uh, she defines three periods. Uh, first one is pre-transcendence, then transcendence, and then post-transcendence. And the pre one is what goes on before. And in that uh, period, you have to clean, clean yourself. What on earth does that mean, cleaning yourself? It means giving up all your attachments. And you want to say to yourself, shrouds don't have pockets. So you can't take anything with you at all. So give it all up. The more you give it up and the cleaner you, you are, the less you will suffer. So if you're going to keep your attachment to your daughter, you'll have an awful time because you don't want to leave and she's there and who's going to look after her and all that sort of thing. One patient I know said to me, um, who's going to look after my little car? Fascinating. Um, in fact, I don't think she meant that. I think she meant to say, who's going to look after my daughter? But it came out as a little car. Um, so there are, in fact, um, time that is a very productive time. If you know about it, you can go through it very easy. You just give everything up. And then you go into transition and the ego structures are crumbling. And so your sense of I at that point is crumbling. Um, and it, it can be there that if, if you have problems, you, they may surface, but quite often you'll get through that without too much difficulty. And then you go into post transition. The ego structures have crumbled and you become cosmic. And there is a vast expansion of consciousness before you die. Fascinating. So, uh, what I teach now is that death is an expansion of consciousness, not a switching off. And that's what the data shows. This is entirely data-driven. And uh, the, the thing about that is that uh, that mental state is really very powerful and important. Uh, what Monica has done, she has... Uh, published a very nice graph which your readers your, rather your listeners uh, can get um, and it is in fact a bar graph showing the amount of suffering people had um, and the uh, non-suffering they had in other words the, the ones who who were fairly clear and had a good good passage and obviously became cosmic early on and uh, what she showed quite clearly is that it actually does matter uh, what has happened in your life as the amount of suffering you have for example uh, near-death experiences 90% of the people there were only nine of them I think went through without any trouble at all why because they knew what dying was like or thought they did, and I think they're right. In fact, then people who pray get a better get a better passage. Uh, people who meditate get a better passage. But this one group that, and I recommend this to all your listeners. May every one of your listeners remember this: that those people who are curious, curious about the process, uh, really have a very good death. So. It's quite simple what you do. Clean thoroughly. Wait for your ego function to crumble. Go into the cosmos, but be curious about this whole process, and, and then you'll be okay. 
So um, that essentially is the dying process uh, from a subjective point of view. I uh, gather that a lot of the uh, information comes from hospice workers who are there at the bedside. And as I recall, when you talked to the hospice administrators, they were roughly in denial that anything interesting was going on. When we spoke to the medical directors, they said, well, uh, of course you can talk to our, our nurses here, but I don't know why you're wasting your time <laughs> because nothing happens when you die. So he said, okay, well, this is now going to see if you're true, if it's true. Um, well, it's fascinating. We got about 60% uh, of people who had seen these things. It's now gone up to about 80 or 90 of people have uh, deathbed visions, etc., the sorts of things that I've talked about. Um, but, of course, uh, the nurses, a lot of them were actually slightly hesitant in talking about it because the, um, the medical staff didn't want them to. And I remember after we'd done the study, going back to one hospice and showing the, uh, the guy who ran it, um, and I said, do you want to get all your nurses together? And I'll show them what a brilliant group they are and show the results. <laughs> he said, yes, yes, I know you found nothing. Let's have a look at what you did get. And, of course, we didn't. We got uh, a vast range of experiences. And as the thing came to an end, um, he sort of motioned to me that he wanted me to to – go and talk to him privately so i did he said peter did you get your data mixed up it doesn't happen here that was absolutely fascinating of course i hadn't got my data mixed up and it was what happened there but yet it was really quite threatening for him to think that most of his life this whole whole range of experiences of the dying had, had passed him by because he took a reductionist view of it. Now, many people who experience the near-death experience talk about the past life review. I think roughly 20% or so of near-death experiencers describe this. Uh, are you able to uh, verify in any way that this is part of the actual dying process? Yeah, and, uh, and uh, in our cardiac sample, it was about 12%. So, um, yes, it does occur. And... Uh, do other people get it outside of it? Yes, they do. Um, so you can have a, a, a near-death-like experience with a life review, and you can get almost life reviews on their own. It's, it's one of the uh, mystical experience or transcendental experiences. So there's every reason to think it's part of the actual dying process. You could, You can't track it from... Uh, when you actually die, because you don't get a life review so early on in the process, it's it's got to come later on in the process of dying, when, of course, if you're actually dying, you don't come back and tell us about it. But if you have an actual death experience, by that I mean your heart is stopped, and if uh, you would die if nobody resuscitated you, then... Um, you get the life reviews. Sometimes, in quite different circumstances, you'll get a life review. A fear-death experience will give you a life review in some cases. So um, they are, in fact, not uncommon in the transcendental literature. Uh, what impressed me about the life review process that's been described in the literature is that uh, people can apparently recall their entire life moment by moment and and the whole process may it seems like it's outside of time and space because it it can happen in in a short period of time maybe a few minutes maybe a few seconds but they also experience their life not only from their own perspective but from the perspective of the experiences of people who they interacted with throughout their life 
that is a very good description of what they're like. And the interesting point is that if they have been particularly horrid to somebody and struck them, then they feel the pain that the other person experienced at the time. And uh, what interests me about this is there is no big God standing over you saying, look what you've done, that's what he felt, you know, not proper. Um, there's only one person who judges you. You see what you've done. You're responsible, and that's it. And so uh, it, it gives one a, a, a different feel for it, really. Yes, I think well, they are. They have to be outside the brain. Uh, before we conclude our interview, Peter, I think it would be very interesting to touch upon your experience of the uh, illumination and the transmittal of a, an illuminated experience that you had working with a spiritual teacher, uh, Alain Forget. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't like that. His name is Forget. He's French. So oh. you have to pronounce <laughs> but in fact, you're quite right. It's spelled Forget. Um, yes, interesting. Uh, I learned a lot from him. Um, he's, uh, I think we can call him a trust fund kid. By that I mean his dad had money and an estate, etc. in France. Um, he, his dad died when he was about, I think it was 979. Uh, in front of him and they had divorced and so his mother wasn't there but his mother came back and took charge of him she of course was very guilty so he was able to manipulate her and it was just the way life was with him he got these terrible terrible pains um, almost every day at school time <laughs> and she was feeling so guilty that he missed out on a lot of his education. Um, and his, he was sent to the UK, so he learned English. Then he had two teachers. The first one was, um, a pupil of Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff was, uh, one of the Russian spiritual masters. And then the other one, uh, fascinating story. I don't know what you would think. Um, he, he says that, his teacher was, I think, about nine, nine or ten, when um, uh, I think it was two Tibetans turned up uh, in his, at his house and discussed with his dad a whole lot of stuff, which resulted in him leaving with the Tibetans. So he went to Tibet and he didn't come back until either his late teens or early 20s. Uh, but by then, of course, he had learned a lot of practices, and he's um, uh, a really uh, amazing person. When you see him, he sort of glows with light, if you know what I mean. Um, and so he was the second teacher of, of Fauché. Now, Fauché spent his life, uh, girls, um, uh, meditating, and driving cars and uh that was him and but the great emphasis was on meditating uh he meditated in notre dame in paris chartres of course the uh chapel of the holy medal in in uh, paris again uh and wherever he went, and he could find a place that had special energy for him, he would sit down and meditate. So most of his life was spent meditating. The age of 26, I think it was, he had his first breakthrough, then a final breakthrough in his 30s. Now, that's interesting because breakthrough in this context is an awakening. And he... Then, um, yes, he describes his awakening very well. He um, uh, then started uh, thinking about the factors that stopped him awakening earlier. And 
uh, he was able to define a pathway to awakening. And he called his method the four Ds. And uh, this is these are just psychological processes that you go through. And he um, was doing this with one of his students, and he suddenly realized that when he meditated, he gave light. And so he looked at this, and of course what had happened is he was developing the cities. And so the cities of giving light is there, and what you should do, of course, is ignore it, and he ignored it, but he found it was having uh, a helpful effect on his students. So um, after, when, after I'd met Forger, I thought it would be nice to get him into the lab, lab and have a look at what was going on when he gave light, and much more important, what was going on in a student when he was giving life. And so we uh, took him with uh, a, a colleague of mine, Joy, who's uh, in a psychology department in London, in London University. And uh, we, we set it up so we could do hyperscanning. Hyperscanning means that you can look at both brains at the same time and see which brain is leading in which frequency range uh, of the cortex. And so we were able to see what was happening when people were told that they didn't know when he was giving the light, when he was not giving the light, when they had to attend, when they didn't have to attend. So we were able to pull out a lot of factors like that. There were two of them. And so we wrote that up. And uh, he has changed enormously. And one of the things that one realizes is that people who awaken uh, put their step put their foot, if you like, onto an evolutionary ladder and develop. And I've known him, I think, for about 11 years. And he's changed enormously. He's developed uh, in every way. And uh, we tried the other day. First thing was, is, uh, remember, I'm sensitive, so I know what I'm looking for with him. Uh, could I see his light by... Um, uh, FaceTime. Uh, well, I th we were able to show pretty clearly that his light giving was a non-local effect anyway. So if it was non-local, non-local means it didn't follow reductionist science rules. Um, it should be we should be able to see it by FaceTime, and we were. And I was with a group of meditators last week and there were about uh i think 90 of them and uh he came along and gave a talk on his system and meditation and things like that and i asked him if he'd give light to the group and i said uh all of you who see his life you're going to get a questionnaire you you know the sort of thing on zoom a nice questionnaire and We'll see how many of you can see it. And I gave them ranges of one to five. And it's really most interesting. Uh, about a third, or it may have been a quarter, I can't remember now, uh, it's in that sort of range, couldn't see it. And that doesn't surprise me. But the others did, and that does surprise me. And some of them uh, even went almost as far as a five. There were very few fives. But uh, there were a lot of threes. So, um, yes, he can get in contact with people. And if you ask, ask him, uh, about so and so, he'll tell you, yeah, they are having a good day. They're not having a good day. All that sort of thing. So all on that non-local stuff. And he just keeps on developing. So, uh, I'm so pleased that we were able to do the study on him. Because it's the first study, really, that looks at this phenomenon. 
uh, in the literature. So that's good. Well, uh, perhaps you could describe your own experience of seeing the light when he's transmitting it. Yes. Uh, first thing you recognize is that it's never the same. So uh, you, you might say, well, yeah, there's the light, but it's going to be different next time, different next time. And this is actually quite a good mental set so that you don't keep seeing things which aren't there. Um, the next thing is that when he gives the light, it's not only the light that you experience, it's the energy as well. So let's deal with the light first. The light can be any different color. Uh, it's usually, in my case, white. You see it surrounding him. You see it on him. You can see it uh, throughout the room. The whole room can change. Uh, uh, with white light fusing it everywhere, sometimes purple light. And uh, he only gives it for about two minutes, so it lasts for that long. Uh, if I'm particularly sensitive, that means I've been good and done my meditation and that sort of thing. Um, I can see it after he stops giving it for about 20 minutes, something like that. So there is, in fact, a receiver component to it. And um, the energy is interesting. It comes in, can run up and down your spine. I can go into your arms and legs and things. So it's, yeah, it, it's uh, interesting feeling. And is there any emotion? Oh, yes. Sometimes you can feel the emotion of love with the light. Um, other times, nothing at all is just cold light. So uh, it's clearly one of the cities. And he, for some reason, has developed it and has continued to develop it because now uh, it's very different from what it was. In the early days when people he gave light and people looked at him, what they saw was him transform his features into a Chinaman. Don't ask me why and don't ask me how, but that's what they reported. So, yes, it's the cities. The cities being the Sanskrit word for powers that one develops through yoga practice. Absolutely. Well, I think what's interesting is you got him into the laboratory and you were able to demonstrate that when he is producing this light experience, his brain waves change, and when people are receiving the experience, their brain waves change in unique ways. Uh, yes, that's true, but it's more interesting than that. Let us take the um, alpha band, uh, uh, which is um, 7 to 13, or 8 to 13, um, and let us take the gamma band, or the beta band, actually, I think it was, which is, say, 14 to 23, something like that. Um, the student would lead when he was giving light in the alpha band, in, in his alpha band, showing that he was talking to him and giving him information through the alpha band, and he would um, talk to the student, or say the, the, the brain waves, his brain waves were in fact controlling the student's brain waves. So there's a sort of two way conversation going on uh, in terms of the electrophysiology of them. So again, that's, that's really interesting. There's sort of a, a synchronization taking place. Not synchronization, because one is leading, but yes, a, a connection. Now, I know you've done a lot of work in your laboratory with various uh, gurus and uh, uh, meditators. And uh, as, as a matter of fact, you even did a, a study of the uh, EEGs of uh, George Harrison, the Beatle. But uh, Surely you're aware of the uh, possibilities of hypnotic suggestion, and I'm pretty sure you're convinced that this experience of light that people report is not simply the result of uh, suggestion. This, of course, is one of the things you have to rule out immediately. And so 
that's why in our study that we did, um, we there were things they couldn't know whether this was to be a giving trial or not giving trial. And they didn't know whether it was to be a not giving trial with them not receiving or receiving. So we were able to remove that, remove that fairly quickly. Uh, there's so much more to talk about, Peter. I know that uh, we haven't even touched on your studies uh, of meditators and uh, your uh, work on reincarnation. So I look forward to the possibility of uh, future interviews with you. But for now, this has been really quite an amazing journey you've been on. I'm delighted to be able to share it with our viewers. And I'd like to thank you very much for being with me today. Well, Jeff, it's fantastic to be here. Great pleasure to see you. Um, I have heard so much about you and seen so much of what you write that to meet you in person is a real pleasure for me. So thank you very much. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.